Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am reading 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. Today, I'm going to read the second part of the 1909 essay, The Social Basis of the Woman Question, which for many people is often seen or considered the foundational document, a very important foundational document in socialist feminism. Before I dive into reading this next section, I wanted to pick up on the concept of left fluidity, which I brought up at the end of part one. The idea that our left identities somehow need to be fixed and that we can't have multiple positions on a sort of left spectrum. There's a sort of ideological purity that is often associated with certain positions on the left and if you fail the test of purity then you are sort of castigated or excised or exercised from the community. And obviously this has been a problem on the left for a really long time. Leftists have been attacking each other for all sorts of reasons. You know, obviously in the 30s, in the Soviet Union, in the Spanish Civil War, we have a long history of disagreements. And some of those disagreements are incredibly productive and some of those disagreements are incredibly counterproductive and destructive of the wider movement. So the part of the essay that I am going to be reading today is yet again another attempt by Alexandra Kolontai in 1909 to distinguish socialist feminists or socialist women's activists from bourgeois feminism. Now from the vantage point of 2019 when we think about intersectionality we understand that it is possible to be concerned about racism, about class, about gender discrimination, about discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or disability or religion, or ethnicity, or any number of identities that we are all somehow composites of our various identities, and that we have to find a way to make these all work together to create big coalitions politically while really respecting our differences internally. And I think that Kolontai is really struggling with this question in this essay. She is fighting a group of feminists that are essentially saying that all women have their interests in common. And Kolontai is saying, no, actually, you rich women have different interests than the proletarian women that you're purporting to represent. But at the end of the day, when you get what you want, you're actually not going to reach out your hand to help your less fortunate sisters. And I think that when we think of lean-in feminism, the sort of Sheryl Sandberg idea of feminism, or the kind of corporate feminism that somebody like Hillary Clinton might represent, the idea that women should be you know, in the boardroom and women should be in politics and a woman should be president, and that this is somehow progress for all women if women are in positions of power. And it's certainly important to have women in positions of power as role models, but that's not enough. In the last episode, I mentioned the work of Nancy Frazier, and he, she has a wonderful article, I can't exactly remember the title, it's in the New Left Review, and it talks about the ways in which capitalism really hijacked feminism away from its roots in social justice movements. And obviously, those roots are related to Kolontai's vision of socialist feminism. But what's interesting about this essay, of course, is that if we read the essay from 1909 on its face, Kolontai is actually advocating for social democracy in this essay, not for socialism. Because at this point, she is a Menshevik. She is aligned with the German Social Democrats, and she'll pretty much stay loyal to the Social Democrats until the outbreak of World War I, when the German Social Democratic Party betrays its international roots. Essentially, they vote war credits to the Kaiser and you know become a bunch of German nationalists when, in fact, they were proposing to be internationalists. 
So as you're listening to this second part of the social basis of the woman question, I want you to be thinking about the tensions that we face in 2019. On the one hand, we definitely want to see more women in positions of power. We want to have things like pay equality and we want to have, you know, women to have reproductive rights and access to the professions and, you know, less sexual harassment and less domestic violence and all sorts of things that are really important feminist issues, women's issues, not only in the United States, but around the world today. But on the other hand, we are advocating for changes within a system that is fundamentally unjust, that creates inequality and is completely, from an ecological point of view, unsustainable in the long run. And so as feminists, if you're only thinking about pay equality, and if you're only thinking about, you know, getting more women on corporate boards, or if you're only thinking about, you know, reducing sexual harassment in the workplace, and you're not really dealing with the structure of that workplace in the in in the first place, the idea that capitalism creates winners and losers, and these days a lot more wealth for the very few winners and a lot less wealth for lots and lots more losers, I think there's a fundamental problem with just becoming a feminist, just saying I'm a feminist and I don't care about capitalism, I don't care about these larger structural inequalities, I'm just going to focus very narrowly on these women's rights. Now, I'm certainly sympathetic to especially young women who want to make incremental changes within the system because they are just trying to change anything. They're coming into their power. They're trying to learn the ropes of how power and influence functions and being able to challenge authority with hashtags and with protests on the street and social actions is important. And I'm not trying to undermine or belittle feminist activism in any way. I'm just saying that when we read Kolontai all these years later, and she is so critical of the quote-unquote bourgeois feminist in this essay, it's important to understand why she's critical of these women and why the feminist movement and social justice movements in the United States today sometimes find themselves at odds. And this is true in other countries as well, because feminists can quite easily accommodate themselves to capitalism as long as they are given equal opportunities to become phenomenally wealthy and they don't care whether or not other people are poor or there's an incredible amount of inequality in society as long as that inequality is not a gendered inequality. But this doesn't make a lot of sense because, for instance, if you think about wages, if your only point is to have men and women have equal pay, then if everybody has really low pay but it's equal, that's not good for anybody. Uh, the idea is to bring up everybody's wages, not to bring down men's wages to the level of women's wages, rather to make sure that everybody has wages upon which they can live a decent life and, and thrive in our society. So that's enough for my pontificating, and I'm going to dive into the second part of the social basis of the woman's question. The woman question assumed importance for women of the bourgeois classes approximately in the middle of the 19th century. A considerable time after the proletarian woman had arrived in the labor arena. Under the impact of the monstrous successes of capitalism, the middle class of the population were hit by waves of need. The economic changes had rendered the financial situation of the petty and middle bourgeoisie unstable, and the bourgeois women were faced with a dilemma of menacing proportions, either accept poverty or achieve the right to work. 
wives and daughters of these social groups began to knock at the doors of the universities, the art salons, the editorial houses, the offices, flooding to the professions that were open to them. The desire of bourgeois women to gain access to science and the higher benefits of culture was not the result of a sudden maturing need, but stemmed from that same question of daily bread. The women of the bourgeoisie met from the very first with stiff resistance from men. A stubborn battle was waged between the professional men attached to their cozy little jobs and the women who were novices in the matter of earning their daily bread. This struggle gave rise to feminism, the attempt of bourgeois women to stand together and pit their common strength against the enemy, against men. As they entered the labor arena, these women proudly referred to themselves as the vanguard of the women's movement. They forgot that in this matter of winning economic independence, they were, as in other fields, traveling in the footsteps of their younger sisters and reaping the fruits of the efforts of their blistered hands. Is it then really possible to talk of the feminists pioneering the road to women's work when in every country hundreds of thousands of proletarian women had flooded the factories and workshops, taking over one branch of industry after another before the bourgeois women's movement was ever born? Only thanks to the fact that the labor of women workers had received recognition on the world market were the bourgeois women able to occupy the independent position in society in which the feminists take so much pride. We find it difficult to point to even one fact in the history of the struggle of the proletarian women to improve their material conditions to which the general feminist movement has contributed significantly. Whatever the proletarian women have achieved in the sphere of raising their own living standards is the result of the efforts of the working class in general and of themselves in particular. The history of the struggle of the working women for better conditions of labor and for a more decent life is the history of the struggle of the proletariat for its liberation. What, if not the fear of a dangerous explosion of proletarian dissatisfaction, forces the factory owners to raise the price of labor, reduce hours, and introduce better working conditions? What, if not the fear of labor unrest, persuades the government to establish legislation to limit the exploitation of labor by capital? There is not one party in the world that has taken up the defense of women as social democracy has done. The working woman is first and foremost a member of the working class, and the more satisfactory the position and the general welfare of each member of the proletarian family, the greater the benefit in the long run to the whole of the working class. In the face of the growing social difficulties, the sincere fighter for the cause must stop in sad bewilderment. She cannot but see how little the general women's movement has done for proletarian women, how incapable it is of improving the working and living conditions of the working class. The future of humanity must seem gray, drab, and uncertain to those women who are fighting for equality, but who have not adopted the proletarian world outlook or developed a firm faith in the coming of a more perfect social system. While the contemporary capitalist world remains unchanged, liberation must seem to them incomplete and impartial. What despair must grip the more thoughtful and sensitive of these women? 
Only the working class is capable of maintaining morale in the modern world with its distorted social relations. With firm and measured step, it advances steadily towards its aim. It draws the working woman into its ranks. The proletarian woman bravely starts out on the thorny path of labor. Her legs sag, her body is torn. There are dangerous precipices along the way, and cruel beasts of prey are close at hand. But only by taking this path is the woman able to achieve that distant but alluring aim, her true liberation in a new world of labor. During this difficult march to the bright future, the proletarian woman, until recently a humiliated, downtrodden slave with no rights, learns to discard the slave mentality that has clung to her. Step by step, she transforms herself into an independent worker, an independent personality, free in love. It is she, fighting in the ranks of the proletariat, who wins for women the right to work. It is she, the younger sister, who prepares the ground for the free and equal woman of the future. For what reason, then, should the woman worker seek a union with the bourgeois feminists, who, in actual fact, would stand to gain in the event of such an alliance? Certainly not the woman worker. She is her own savior. The future is in her own hands. The working woman guards her class interests and is not deceived by great speeches about the world that all women share. The working woman must not and does not forget that while the aim of the bourgeois women is to secure their own welfare in the framework of a society antagonistic to us, our aim is to build in the place of the old, outdated world a bright temple of universal labor, comradely solidarity, and joyful freedom. That's the end of the second part of this essay. The next section of the essay is called Marriage and the Problem of the Family, and I will dive into that in the following episode of the podcast. But for now, I just want to reflect once again on this interesting tension between trying to build a world change the world from within a system versus trying to destroy that system and build a new system. And this whole idea of revolution or reform or incrementalism or, you know, doing everything all at once has been a debate on the left for as long as anybody can remember. And there are different ideas for why one is more effective, whether you can do both at the same time, whether, you know, trying to change the system from the inside ultimately helps keep that system alive and you know, perpetuates its existence even longer. Certainly a lot of people feel that you have to just tear the whole thing down and rebuild a new society from scratch. And I think you can see here that Kolontai is struggling with this tension in this essay. She's saying on the one hand, look, these bourgeois women are just trying to make changes within the system. They're just trying to get rights and privileges from men that they didn't have before, but they're not really tackling this larger system of capitalism, which is exploitative of the entire proletariat. But on the other hand, she's a social democrat and she's advocating for a parliamentary pathway to socialism in Germany and, and across Europe at this particular moment of time. She actually thinks that reform uh, it can happen, reform for the working class, as long as it's labor reform, as long as it's reform that sort of does away with class inequalities and is not only focused specifically on gender inequalities. So there's this way where Kolontai is sort of contradicting herself. On the, way she, on the one side, she's saying we can't think about incrementalism. And on the other hand, she's an advocate of incrementalism and reform. And so, you know, she's not perfect. Obviously, this is 1909. She's using this essay as a way to think through her own thoughts. And she's obviously trying to convince people to join 
join her side, to abandon the feminists and come join a proletarian, a larger proletarian movement that's actually going to build a much better society in the future for everybody, not just for a few bourgeois women who are going to be able to become professors and artists, but all people who are going to have better standards of living and and actually get a bigger share of the wealth that they produce through their labor from the capitalist class. But on the other hand, she's, you know, not really talking about revolution at this point. And she's thinking about incrementalism and parliamentary democracy, which, to be fair, in Tsarist Russia in 1909 was enough to get you sent to prison, possibly killed. And certainly, uh, Kolontai spends a lot of time in exile running away from the Tsarist police for her rad- radical parliamentary ideas. So it's a different time. Uh, we always have to keep in mind the historical context within which these essays are being written, not only in Russia, but also in Western Europe. And I think that it's really productive to actually go back and think, okay, well, maybe Kolontai was contradicting herself. Maybe she wasn't really being very clear about all of this. I mean, maybe her ideas are going to change, and they do change, and we know that they change over the course of her life. And that's why I want to come back to this idea of left fluidity, because I do think there's something valuable about being able to kind of slide around a little bit on the left spectrum for different ideas, different historical contingencies. I think that we all have to be really open-minded. We have to learn from the past. And when we're reading somebody like Kolontai, who can sometimes have some pretty retrograde ideas, as we'll see in future podcasts, we have to always read her within her context and not try to criticize her from the standpoint of 2019 if she is not necessarily entirely theoretically consistent all of the time in her writing. So that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe, like, share, review, do whatever it is that you do in order to show that you like what's going on on this podcast and keep up the good fight.